This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored here we go another episode of literary treks your dedicated star trek books and comics show here on the trek fm network i'm dan gunther and joining me as he does every week is the wonderful the resilient the powerful bruce gibson bruce how are you this fine day i'm doing fine please please keep keep talking about me i love it 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 sounds (laughs) wonderful no no i'm doing great um you know, I'm looking forward to the feature, talking about book three in this trilogy we've been reading. I've got some thoughts. I'm holding them off until we get there because I know we've got some news items. But uh, yeah, looking forward to this. Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned, our feature today will be for book three of the String Theory Voyager trilogy. Um, this book is Evolution by Heather Jarman. But before we get there, we do have some book news to share with you. So first of all, we've got a new cover reveal, and of course this is always exciting when we get this, and this cover is for the Star Trek novel More Beautiful Than Death by David Mack, and this is the second of two books released that are based in the Kelvin timeline uh, this year, so... You know, I've been really looking forward to this one based on what David Mack has said about it over the years. And it's been like a decade since this was originally going to come out. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking forward to all these books when we heard about them 10 years ago. (laughs) I'm just like, (laughs) oh, I wonder if we'll ever see them. And I really didn't think we would. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, now we're getting them. And uh, we had the unsettling stars by Alan Dean Foster. And of course we had him on the show and and talked about that book. And so I'm looking forward to get into the second one by David Mack. You know, this is the only other one we're getting that we know of that takes Mm -hmm. place in this universe. Yeah. I'm hoping we'll get some more set during this time, just because I like Star Trek books and I like new and different Star Trek books. And it's kind of fun to see these authors tackle that universe so this one in particular, we've like I said, we've got the cover revealed. It's this very bright yellow font for Star Trek, and it's going up the side of the book as the Star Trek original series and Kelvin Timeline books have been doing lately. And in the main part, we've got the triad of Kirk, Spock, and Uhura, 
And down hiding in the bottom right corner, we've got Ben Cross's version of Sarek. And they're all in kind of this red, orangey, yellow glow. So I don't know. It's a pretty plain cover as far as the visuals go. Very similar to my eye to the Unsettling Stars. But color-wise, I think it really pops, really will catch the eye when you see it in a bookstore. Yeah, it's that red glow, but then there's that yellow tint in there with then the bright yellow logo. It really plays off each other. I mean, it really is the red and yellows. That's the best way to describe this cover. But there's something about it that makes me feel it feels almost like a Titan cover to me. There must be a a Titan book out there that this is like kind of tapping in the back of my mind where it's like, yeah, it looks like that one, but I can't place exactly which Titan cover it is. Mm-hmm. That's funny. I didn't think of that because Titan, of course, has the the words running up the side like that as well. So that's funny. I, I hadn't made that connection, but you're right. It does kind of evoke that feeling for me as well. Yeah. And it's funny to see Ben Cross as Sarek here because like at the time he was the new Sarek that replaced the Mark Leonard version. But now we've got another new Sarek since then that we've actually seen a lot more of. So it's kind of weird. <laughs> Yeah, we have Sarek's everywhere now. It's it's so funny. Well, it's odd because you, as you're mentioning, we've always had the one actor playing Sarek. I know we had Star Trek V, a young Sarek there during Spock's birth thing. But forget about that. But you know, speaking parts of Sarek, that a lot of these characters, we said, hey, we've we're used to these same actors after 50 years. It's going to be an odd adjustment to these other new movies having different actors and now it's like we've got a third wave not long (laughs) after that you know and so hey we may have a fourth wave i mean i do predict by the way in strange new worlds that that will lead into either a new season as it goes on or a new series that will feature kirk spock and mccoy and crew hmm Interesting. I don't know how I feel about that. I'll have to sit with that for a little bit, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean that for a while. (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll definitely have to see how I feel about that. But, uh, yeah, we also of course have the back cover blurb for this novel as well, which, uh, definitely makes it sound interesting. And of course we had kind of publishers descriptions about these books way back when, But presumably these books have been tightened up, edited a little bit to maybe fit with other stuff that has come out in the Kelvin timeline since then. But with all of that said, here's the back cover blurb that Simon & Schuster has released. Captain James T. Kirk and the Enterprise crew escort Spock's father, Ambassador Sarek of Vulcan, to a dilithium-rich planet called Acheron. They arrive to find the planet under siege by creatures that some of the planet's denizens believe are demons. Sarek orders Kirk to abandon the mission, but the young captain won't turn his back on people in danger. After a harrowing encounter with the dark energy demons, Kirk's belief in the rational universe is challenged by a mystic, who insists that it wasn't coincidence which brought Kirk to Acheron, but the alien equivalent of a karmic debt. Meanwhile, aboard the Enterprise, Sarek's young Vulcan aide Linnell has a sinister agenda, and its chief objective appears to be the cold-blooded murder of Spock. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> no, no. Maybe, maybe they just felt that Spock must die. <laughs> Interesting. Consulting credit to James Blish, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Yeah, one of the first <laughs> Star Trek novels out there. 
uh, which, hey, maybe one day we'll get to that on the show. Never um, know. I think I'm really interested in this because of the whole Vulcan angle in this timeline. So mm-hmm. um, I hope David really plays off of that, that difference in this timeline of the Vulcans. Yeah. That to me is what makes stories set in this timeline worthwhile is examining the big differences between that universe and the one where the the prime universe. And of course, like you are alluding to, the destruction of Vulcan is a big one. And I think the unsettling stars kind of used that well in a way where, where Spock was kind of responding to the plight of refugees. He sees his species as a refugee species as well. So yeah, the fact that Vulcans feature heavily in this and there's a sinister, sinister plot by a Vulcan and we get ambassador Sarek, I think it's going to use that circumstance really well. Yeah, I think, I think so. Cause it has to be a little different. You just don't put it in this timeline just to have in the timeline. It's just a regular Star Trek story that can fit in any timeline. What's the point, right? Exactly. There's so much, so much I want to see in stories in this timeline. It's just incredible that I, I just don't think we'll ever get it, but I really, I could sit down right now with these authors and say, okay, here's 20 stories. I think you guys can play with. Mm-hmm. I love how many times you said timeline in that as well, too. I was flashing back to Troy timeline. This is no time to talk about time. We don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't even, you know, calling it the Kelvin timeline though is fine, but I don't like calling the movies in these books kelvin timeline books it's like but i don't really know what else to call them you know i find it interesting that they've gone with just star trek which is kind of cool on the on the covers so we've got star trek the original series called out on like original five-year mission tos novels but these ones just say star trek so i think that was an interesting choice on their part and it's in the font from the original series that's you know they're not using I mean, I know there's a kind of a similar font in the sense that they've used for the newer movies, but they've also had a different one. Like, I'd rather, I'm kind of surprised they didn't go with something that looked a little different, look more like the modern take on the Star Trek Mm -hmm. font, you know? Yeah, like, because the films use the same font as the original series, but they kind of make the... The word, the letters three dimensional and metallic looking. I think I, I would have thought that's kind of what they would have gone with. Yeah. But hey, I'm not complaining. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, another piece of news that we have is an update finally to the Star Trek comics release schedule, uh, which is exciting. So we've got a new release schedule for the comics over the summer. As you probably know, Diamond, the main comics distributor, had kind of shut down operations due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but it looks like IDW is back up and pushing out comics. So uh, we've got a new schedule throughout the whole summer releases of these comics continuing the year five storyline. We've also of course got the deep space nine too long, a sacrifice miniseries coming, which I have been eagerly awaiting Uh, which are, of course, the first Deep Space Nine comics in a decade, which is crazy. And then uh, later on, towards the end of the summer, we've also got the one-off issue featuring Khan in the Mirror Universe. So lots of great new comics coming up, and one of them has already even been released. Yes, and you know, we've gone back and read two older comics, and I really thought we still wouldn't see a new comic for another month. So yeah, we've got a new comic that just came out uh, this this month 
So we're already getting things started, but all these other ones that you had mentioned are all starting to kick off really in July. July is the big month that we really start to get multiple issues going into then August and, and so on. So yeah, this summer... July and August look like good months for comics. And now, of course, we've got this one, Dan. We can review it on the show. Well, what do you say we jump right in and do that then? So we've got Star Trek Year 5, number 11. Uh, And yeah, so I read this one very shortly before we started recording this podcast. I, I held on to it and put off reading it until we got the chance to talk about it here And I kind of just want, Bruce, your initial thoughts uh, overall kind of on the story, because I have some overall thoughts on the story that I'm eager to share, too. Oh, wow. I feel like I'm being set up. (laughs) Um, I'm okay. What I think is I'm a little bit confused, Hmm. but I think we're supposed to. So Gary Seven is in this. And in an earlier, about uh, three issues before this, I think it was issue number nine, no, eight, that had Gary Seven introduced at the end of the comic. And so I'm not surprised to see him here, but I'm surprised to see how he's acting. Oh, interesting. Okay. Doing. That's kind of, because it, he's, he's not getting along with our crew. You know, it's like mm-hmm. I expected Gary Seven to show up and the Enterprise crew was like, hi, Gary. And Gary's like, hi, Kirk. But instead, he's against the crew. He's trying to sabotage the ship. So I was surprised by that. I just I guess I'm my overall feeling is I don't really understand why he's doing it. But I feel like that's going to be revealed later. But I get the sense that you have an issue with this issue. <laughs> Actually, what I was going to say is I absolutely loved this issue. Okay. I was really, really digging this. And Gary Seven is an interesting character to me because, you know, when we see him in the original series, he's all about his mission. He's got to accomplish his mission no matter what. And in that case, in the end, his goals and the Enterprise's goals aligned and it worked really well together. But this Gary Seven, we kind of learned this slowly over the course of this issue. This is a much older Gary Seven than we saw. It sounds like he's been doing this for a long time. Like it's been a it's been a couple of years for the Enterprise crew. It sounds like it's been a much longer time for Gary Seven because he's jumping around the timeline and stuff or something like that. So he's much more jaded, much more hardened, and this time around, apparently, whatever it is he's trying to accomplish, and we don't really know exactly what that is yet, there's a vague allusion made to, like, the conflict is supposed to be short with minimal casualties or something like that. So he's trying to, like, start a conflict, it sounds like, to get it over with quickly or something. But we don't know what his ultimate goal is, but his goals right now don't align with what the Enterprise is doing and what Kirk is doing. So we're seeing that he can be an extremely formidable opponent when you're in the way of his mission, which I think is really fascinating because, you know, ostensibly he's a force for good, we think, based on the one time we saw him. But, you know, what if the the long-term goals, something's going to put his mission off track, so he's going to become an obstacle, be, going to become an antagonist. And this is kind of the sort of thing I wanted to see with the Temporal Cold War story in Enterprise, where mm-hmm. the goals of these 
time travelers and people who are influencing the past are so far beyond anything that Archer and his crew are dealing with that it doesn't make any sense to them what the heck they're doing, you know? And that's kind of the feeling that I get here that like, there's some larger goal in mind that they've got to manipulate things to be able to get to, but Kirk's in the way somehow. And that's what I felt was a little confusing when I first went into this because I expect them to be friends and mm-hmm. it's not that they can't be friends, but Gary seven is so focused on his mission and what his goal is that I start to now worry about our crew because if they're in the way of making this happen, whatever it is, he's trying to prevent from happening. I'm afraid that he's willing to risk their lives. And this goes back to the very first issue of the series where we're like, okay, there's a gun being held to Kirk's head on the bridge. Who is that? And now I'm thinking, well, it looks like it would be Gary seven because this issue ends with the two of them alone on the bridge and they're opposed to each other. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, this is all seems to be leading to that because we've seen Gary holding a weapon that looks kind of more like a gun than a phaser does. You know, and and it makes me think that, oh, that's the mysterious figure behind Kirk, whether that's the ultimate case or if that's a bit of a misdirection, I'm not sure. But yeah, it really seems like we're headed into some very dangerous territory here. And I just don't see how they're going to get out of it, because if he needs to rid Kirk in any way, how is he going to do it? And if he is the one with the gun to his back of his head, then (laughs) If he's not going to go through with it, why was he holding the gun to his head? Like, now I'm really curious to know how we get out of this. Mm -hmm. I feel like it might be a misdirection. Like, maybe that's someone else somehow. And Gary Seven, you know, so so the, the, the cover for the next issue is this really kind of cool graphic cover where it shows the dedication plaque of the enterprise and we see the shadow of Kirk with the gun to the back of his head and there's blood kind of splattered across. Uh, I'm wondering if, you know, Gary takes out the person that has his gun to Kirk's head or something. I don't know. You know, maybe he just needed to be in the right place at the right time to do that or something like that. I I don't know, but, but then we're back to that, you know, well then who is it? Right. Yeah. Well, (laughs) exactly. It would be, (laughs) yeah, we don't know yet. Uh, I'm, it's making me really look forward to where this story is going because I think this setup has been really cool. Uh, there's some great stuff in this issue too. I love that they've put the, uh, the Tholian adolescent in an environmental suit and, and they're interacting with the crew. And uh, in that little bit too, we get a really cool little interaction with regards to the pronouns that, that this Tholian prefers to be referred to as. So not he, not she, but they, and then an ensign calls them an it. <laughs> and and they say, they, not it, never it. And I just, I love that. That was beautiful. Yeah. And when we got to the issue where we were first introduced to this Tholian and they referred to the Tholian as they, I mentioned on that show, I was a bit confused because when I hear the word they, I think of it in a plural setting, but I've since learned about this more and I wasn't that familiar with it then. And I mean, I totally get this now. Um, For example, if 
you know, there's uh, somebody come to work on the roof of my house and I don't know if it's a man or a woman or co- that's coming, I could say, you know, well, when they get here, they'll work on the roof. I'm really, ref- I'm referring to this one person, but I don't know if it's a man or a woman. So I refer to that person as they, when they get here, they'll work on the roof or when they get here with the pizza, we'll start having dinner. And that's mm-hmm. when I understood, okay, that's what we mean by they. I'm used to they being the plural, meaning a group of people. But uh, it totally makes sense to me now. If if it's not, if we don't know if something's male or female, it, it's it's they. Yeah, it's them. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, like a singular they has been used for a long time in English, and most yeah. people, like you say, like in the ing- examples you give, use it without thinking. You know, it's it's as soon as someone says that they prefer to be referred to as they, as opposed to he or she, that some people seem to quickly develop a problem with it so um you know i love that you made that connection that it's something that we're used to it's just extending that to after you've met the person (laughs) yeah and this is again things i like about star trek i still learn things from it and this is just a perfect example Absolutely. So another thing I wanted to note about this issue is I love the artwork as usual. It's very dynamic. The action poses, the the main characters and everything look great. Gary Seven, I, I, I think they've captured him quite well. But one thing that I found interesting is having recently watched the Enterprise episodes Demons and Terra Prime, I was totally getting a Peter Weller vibe from how he looks in this issue. And I think that really works because he's so menacing. And, you know, when I think about it, they actually have very similar looks. I would love to see Peter Weller actually make like a cameo appearance as Gary Seven somehow, maybe in Strange New Worlds or or a short tracks or something. I think that would be so cool. But anyway, that just popped into my head, especially like looking at the last few frames of this issue as well. That's very interesting. I never thought about that before that how much the two of them look very similar to each other. And now I can't unsee it. (laughs) You know, it's, it's that, that's a good call there. But yeah, the artwork does look like Gary seven, like we Mm -hmm. see in the original series. The artwork's really good. The, The other thing I like about this issue is the escape pods, which we typically don't see. Uh, with this enterprise, if any time we've seen anything like this, it reminds me of, for example, in star Trek beyond, when we see all the escape pods leaving the enterprise, this is similar, but in the TOS style. Yeah. And I love these escape pods. I love like the old style TOS sixties chairs in them that look like the shuttlecraft chairs and stuff. <laughs> and That's the little red stuff. wings. on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're kind of cute. I like those escape pods. No, this is a good issue. I, I'm really intrigued to know where this is going next. I think more so than any other issue, maybe after that first issue when the gun was to Kirk's head, mm. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait till the next issue. But now this is the issue where I'm just like that again, where I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen next? Yeah, I feel like this would be a good one once all everything is said and done to reread from start to finish to kind of put that whole story together and and link it back to that would be really fascinating. Yeah. And I do want to point out again, we're talking about issue number 11 issue number 12 comes out July 1st, 
But the other thing I want to mention is that these two issues, along with the previous four, will be in a trade paperback coming out later in July. So if you haven't been getting the individual issues and you're interested in reading the storyline, you might want to wait until you get Star Trek Year 5 Volume 2 later in July and get the whole storyline in that trade paperback book. Yeah, definitely. It's and and like I said, I feel like this was one that would definitely benefit from a read like that, like all of them kind of through. So, yeah, that would be that would be a fun way to read them for sure. And now before we get to the feature, let's discuss some feedback from the Babel conference for Literary Treks 304, Vulcans Do Not Cry, and that was for book 2 of the Voyager String Theory series Fusion by Kirsten Beyer. So Justin Ozer says regarding the Mark Leonard comic Blood and Honor, I know you had some issues with feeling some things felt familiar or predictable, but I actually didn't feel that way at all. And even though the ending may have seemed sudden, I loved the reveal and found it very moving because it connects to one of my favorite episodes in all of Star Trek. So you may remember from that comic, the ending involved the Organians from Errand of Mercy tying that all together. So definitely an interesting tie up that connects it to some of the uh, earlier stuff in Star Trek. And uh, I appreciate that comment because, uh, yeah, it was a great comic. And despite a few issues... I did really enjoy it. And we have another comment from Andy Aldridge who says, just finished listening. Great episode as always. Literary Treks is almost as good as that Positively Trek podcast. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> About the book, I have been so relieved the past two episodes hearing from you both and taking comfort knowing I wasn't the only one getting lost and confused throughout the books. Book three, I found the most confusing. Mm, that's interesting. I can't wait till we get to the feature then. Um, that's me saying that. Okay. And back to Andy. It was my investment in the Voyager characters that kept me reading this whole trilogy. The story itself kept confusing me and making my brain ache. <laughs> my favorite bit of book two was the Phoebe story with no one realizing she shouldn't have been there. I was sad that the element of the story seemed to get wrapped up quite quickly. I could have happily read a whole novel with that storyline as the main focus. This was my favorite book out of the trilogy. Overall, it was a decent trilogy, just too confusing. The Destiny trilogy has set the bar so high in Trek literature, I'm not sure if any other trilogy will come close to it. That was a trilogy proved you can have a lot going on, but still keep everything comprehensible and easy to follow. Having said that, I'm still pleased to have read String Theory, a great way to enjoy Voyager in its anniversary year. Great pick, Bruce and Dan. Well, thanks, Andy. I, gosh, I don't want to reveal too much before we get to the feature, but you and I do think a lot alike. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we're of three minds. No, where our minds are three of a kind. I'm not sure how to say that. We're all think alike on this. So yeah, I think you've, uh, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there and whatever other confused metaphors I can dump here. So thank you for that comment. Yeah. And well, I had no idea going into this trilogy, what anybody thought of it. When we picked this, I had no clue if this was good or not. I didn't read any reviews, but I've been hearing from people and we're all pretty much on the same page. Well, what do you say we go talk about it in our feature then? Okay, here's that page. We're going to flip it. 
Well, as we said at the top of the show, we are talking about the third and final book in the Voyager String Theory trilogy. This one is Evolution by Heather Jarman. And this one sees the conclusion of Voyager's mission, I guess, in Menorhan space and the kind of universe unraveling things that have been happening as a result of what they started there. So, yeah. Here we go. This has kind of uh, been a confusing trilogy, as we said. And, you know, this one definitely fits <laughs> that mold. But we're going to do our best to kind of tackle the uh, happenings and what's going on in this. And before we get into this, I'm going to say uh, spoilers right off the top, because we're three books into this series Definitely, you should have read the novel if you want to listen to this discussion. Uh, if you don't care about spoilers, then by all means, that's fine. But we are going to be spoiling the heck out of this book. Yes, and we are definitely going to go into that like immediately. Because, yeah, when you're doing a trilogy, it's hard to avoid spoilers when you get to the third book. Because it's basically the third chapter and a three-chapter story. Mm -hmm. It's the last chapter. Yeah, and plus the way this book is set up, I think, and the way the previous books have led into this, we're kind of following a bunch of different storylines that are happening uh, at the same time. Not even actually at the same time, because one of them's happening, you know, hundreds of years before. So it's yeah. it's very confusing, but <laughs> we'll explain it all. Yeah, I mean, imagine trying to do a spoiler-free review of Star Wars Return of the Jedi without giving away... Uh, what happened to Han Solo in the previous movie. Mm, you kind of have to give that away at the very beginning of your review. <laughs> exactly. So to start out with, we've got uh, what we're talking, what we're calling Tom and Harry's big adventure. And I, I love that you've titled that this in the notes here. This is great. Yeah, dude. So, so at the end of the last novel, one of the things they'd done was they, there was this experiment using this strange transporter technology and Tom and Harry were aboard a shuttlecraft that was sent away using this, but somehow got lost. And in this novel, we find out that they are in what they call a suburb of the Q continuum. So very early on, we get Q show up. Uh, so first of all, I want to know, what do you think of the inclusion of Q in this novel? I'm not big fan of Q in this novel, honestly. Um, I'm okay with using Q for it. I just feel like we use a Q a little too much sometimes. I also feel like we use the Borg a little too much sometimes. But um, I didn't. I, I didn't like the portrayal of Q in this as much. Hmm. Um, it just really wasn't working for me. And I didn't. I I thought about this afterwards and after reading the book. And I thought you would probably ask me this type of question. And when I thought about it, I was like, I think I would have liked to seen this been a different nascene that was helping out. Like there's helping Tom and Harry to find the um, keeper of the light. And that as opposed to having Q being involved, I just mm -hmm. thought it was almost, I don't want to say it in a negative way, but just kind of a cheap trick to get Q in there. I have to admit when he first showed up and we realized where Tom and Harry were, that was kind of my thinking as well. I was thinking, oh man, we really got to bring Q into this. And I don't know. But as the story went on, I, I don't know. I actually liked the way Q was portrayed here. And I thought that 
Heather Jarman did a good job of capturing his voice. And I actually did remember when I was reading, I think it was book two, when they were talking about how like this part of space could unravel all of creation and blah, blah, blah. I remember thinking like, wouldn't the Q have something to say about that? Like, wouldn't they be (laughs) a little annoyed at that? So it's kind of interesting that that pays off a little bit that like the Q are like, okay, yeah, we do have an interest in what's going on here. And the actual involvement of Q and we learned that his job was to kind of look after the keeper of the light. And we learn more about who the keeper of the light is as this novel goes on. I thought that was a little bit of a cheat way to get him into it. But at the same time, I was also kind of going along with, yeah, they would be concerned with the end of the universe kind of thing. Yeah. And once I accepted Q being part of this and I didn't have a problem with it necessarily. It's just, like I said, I feel like we go to the Q well a little too often, but you know, once I accept that, I'm like, okay, we got Q in this. It makes sense. Like, just like what you're saying, as long as it made sense and it was working for me, that was fine. But it's interesting how we differ on his voice. I, his voice just didn't sound quite true to me, but for me, that's okay. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is a novel. It doesn't always have to sound just like the actor. I don't necessarily judge books on having it sound just like how somebody portrays in a TV show. This is an author's interpretation. I didn't, I wanted him to be a little more menacing, I guess is what I'm saying. He was a little mm. too soft for me. I wanted him, I wanted more edge from him. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, he was palling around with Harry and Tom a little bit. Yeah, um, putting th- his arm around their necks like, hey, and I was just like, you know, I wanted to be a little more edgy. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess for me, like I had recently seen the episode The Q in the Gray, where he actually does that on the holodeck with Tom. He puts his arm around him and is asking him for advice about courting Janeway. So I don't know, it fit with the Voyager version of him i guess a little bit and it was just because i'd seen that recently that was in my head so well now that's interesting you say that because now that makes sense for me because as time went on when we've gone and used q into voyager i wasn't liking q as much anymore Mm -hmm. and that's certainly the case for me as well i find it interesting they spend some time in the continuum and we uh we learn about some places in the continuum. Now, again, of course, this is all kind of through the eyes of Tom and Harry, so it's not all literal, but apparently there's QU, which is the university in the Q continuum, (laughs) um, and a number of different environments. So there's, there's one bit of the novel where there's gambling involving racing, and they call it Uh, Not pod racing, because I would remember that. It was node racing. That was it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And at one point, Tom actually, like, becomes a pilot of one of these nodes to win a race and stuff. (laughs) I loved the description of this because it was so strange and so weird. And then kind of that ultimate reveal of where they actually were, which was, I think, like in the stomach of a cat because they get coughed up as a hairball or something. That was, I was weird. <laughs> I was kind of on board for all of that. I really enjoyed that because it wasn't just like, oh, it looks like a bunch of cars racing around a track or something like that. Like it was genuinely strange and weird. And then like, I, I kind of really enjoyed that. I did too. I the one thing I didn't enjoy as much is Tom's like, oh, well, I know how we can get out of this pickle. I just will enter the race and win it. 
You know, it's like, oh, we're that confident, are we, Tom, that you can just do this the first time ever because Mm -hmm. you're such a great pilot. And of course, he does win it, but I don't know, whatever. And I, you know, they said these little node pod things or whatever look like kind of like eggs. And I kept thinking of Mork and Mindy, Mork in his egg (laughs) spaceship. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I kept picturing that going through the water and flying around. You know, the whole Tom and Harry's big adventure stuff. I found that to be quite fun. I enjoyed it. As much as I said I didn't quite like the characterization of Q as much, I did find this part of the book to be fun. Every time I got to this, I got excited. I was like, ooh, we're back to Tom and Harry again. And I like them being at QU. I like, uh, we have lowercase Q, who we haven't talked about yet. I liked her character in this. This part of it was probably my favorite part of the book. Yeah, I I was actually going to say something very similar. There's another part of the book we'll get to that I also really enjoyed. But this one, I think I was having the most fun reading. And like there's another pyramid game, they call it or something like that, where they're betting different planetary systems and nebula and stuff. And like that felt very cute to me like oh we're just gambling with the fate of galaxies and and planets and stuff i thought that was a re- that that's the one part where i was like okay this feels cute to me yeah that definitely feels cute and that's the thing it's like the visuals of what we're talking about seem insane and kind of weird uh, but we relate to them. Okay, we're at a university, we're at a casino, all these different things we're talking about, but that's not exactly how things look. It's like you said earlier, it's like we can't relate to the visuals of what the Q continuum looks like. And so these are images and places that we can relate to, but it's not really true to it. So as Q is playing this game and gambling planets and stuff, it's not really in a casino. It doesn't really look like planets in a marble or something to that effect, like they're gambling with. It's just something we can relate to. And I just kept thinking in my mind, like, this is something as they're playing with the universe, we can't even comprehend what that would look like, but it's big. Yeah, definitely. The one thing that I kind of got annoying about this part of the book for me, though, was how Harry kept being portrayed as just like the ultimate loser. (laughs) It was starting to grate on me. I'm like, okay, yes. Yeah, he dies a bunch of times in the show and he never gets promoted and, you know, all this stuff. But he's not an idiot. And there's a few times where I'm like, oh, he's just being written as an idiot. And I it bugged me a little bit, but that's kind of pretty minor compared to how much I'm enjoying reading this part. Yeah, and his attraction to the lowercase q, uh, that was kind of fun, though, how he's just like stammering and like, uh, and, and can't concentrate because he keeps looking at her <laughs> and she's kind of <laughs> flirting with him and playing with him and Tom. And I don't know. It was all kind of cute. Yeah, it was fun. But it, again, that it bugged me how, like, I don't know, how idiotic it made Kim seem. Because I don't know, he was not that much of an idiot, but okay. No, but he, I I wouldn't say he was a complete idiot though in this. I mean, he did figure out who the, who Cole was, the keeper of light. He looked at that picture. I mean, he, he did some smart things, but yeah, there were times, you know, there were times he was, you know, a bit shaggy and scooby in this, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. It's the, like not even being able to think straight because of how cute lowercase Q looks. And he, yeah, I'm like, 
Okay. Anyway, <laughs> not a huge deal. <laughs> so another hanging mystery at the end of the last novel, and I almost said episode. You, you've got me thinking that now. I've got to make sure not to do that. Uh, was the doctor, and the doctor is pulled into what we assume to be Exosia at the end of the last book. And in this novel, we catch up with him. He's finds himself kind of in this theater, and he starts being able to direct this orchestra of instruments and the string section in particular responds to him and, and different versions of him are playing all the instruments under his direction. But eventually he confronts a Nacine by the name of Vivia and she kind of chastises him for disrupting the strings. And, and he realizes that like, yeah, wherever this is, this exosia, they have like, control over the workings of the universe and the strings that the title string theory refers to. And Vivia kind of persuades him to help her find uh, the light. This, this Nacine who's a member of the exiles who was kind of leading the exiles at one point or something like that. Uh, because the doctor, she can't harm him for reasons you know, she he kind of has a bit of pull over her because he can disrupt the strings. So she says, OK, I'll help you get back to Voyager, but you've got to do this for me or something like that. Kind of unclear on how that all happens, but he finds himself <laughs> going back in time uh, to the planet Ocampa, which, of course, was the planet in the pilot episode of Voyager that Kess is from. And he finds himself in the past on that planet as a warrior or an advisor to a general. Uh, and his name, the doctor's, the person that the doctor is now inhabiting is named Sed, this guy who had died in the service of a young woman general, uh, Ocampa general named Leah. So... I enjoyed this part. I, I This is the other part of the novel that I really enjoyed was looking at the past of Ocampa. And we should also say that the, the novel actually opens with kind of a, a prologue set on Ocampa in the past. And we see this said character die that the doctor later becomes. I'm really enjoying this. I'm loving the glimpse back into Ocampa. And it's kind of cool how this series is showing us the Nacine. It's showing us Q. It's showing us the Ocampa. A lot of these things that are very integral to the series of Voyager as a whole. So it's kind of really cool that we go back to the beginning here. Yeah, I talked to you a few days ago and I had just started the novel and I said I'd only read the prologue and you said you were further ahead. And I said, I really like the prologue. And I think it's because that it takes place in the past of Ocampa and it, it almost had a fantasy feel to it. And it was just a little different, you know, and I really enjoyed it. I was hoping to get some more of that. And I guess in a sense we did, but it was from the doctor's point of view. And yeah, this is my second favorite part of the book is the doctor's journey in this. And I like that he takes the role of said that he's not just the doctor there in the past and he's trying to help them out, that he is this other character and he looks like said he's just uh, quantum leaping into this. <laughs> That's so. totally how I pictured it, too. Like I imagined Robert Picardo as the doctor walking around in this armor but then, like, he'd pass a mirror and it would be an Ocampa, yeah. this balding Ocampa adjunct to Leah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's all this these battles that are happening, and he's in this war zone. And I like the relationships, and it was building to what his relationships with this Leah, and and then there's this other soldier there, Balaam, and there was something about Balaam, and there was some questions of like who the Balaam was and his eyes, and he starts realizing this is a Nacine, and it really started to get interested in this whole part of it, and then it really gets interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Towards the end, things start to get a little bit crazy. So Leah, the doctor realizes, has entered her elogium, which is her fertility period. And so that's why she's getting weaker and, and, and all this sort of stuff. And Balaam, it turns out, of course, is the light. He's this scene that's been hiding out here kind of thing. And they're going to create a child somehow but yeah Kess is involved and yeah, before leah dies because she's really wounded she could die but they have to have a child and so they bring Kess into it <laughs> yeah so i was not exactly sure why all that had to happen but it's a really cool way to bring Kess back it was really nice to see Kess, and yeah so i guess it's Kess and the light who have a child is that correct uh i took it as kes and leah as one having a child with okay. balaam the light as if okay. they're one and i can't remember and maybe you can help me remember this but you said you know we got kes and why kes i'm i'm trying to figure out why did they bring kes of all the accompa i think it's because the doctor kept looking at Leah and thinking how she reminds him so much of Cass and somehow he was that bridge to connect them to Cass. And she has, you know, these powers mm -hmm. that the others don't have. And it was like, he was that bridge of bringing her with those powers into this to help Leah and kind of merge in a sense into one, not physically, but more spiritually uh, as this like entity of some type or whatever to give her strength to hang on. I, it's not like they had sex with Balaam. It was just kind of like they all could just stand in a room together and get pregnant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or maybe title? they drank the water. I don't is that, know. <laughs> is that a title? No. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. And it's interesting that this is basically what, Vivia sent the doctor back in time to prevent and he actually facilitates it happening. So because Vivia doesn't want the keeper of the light to be born, which is what the offspring of Balaam and, and Kess slash Leah is Cole, the keeper of the light, the guy that Tom and Harry are searching for in the Q continuum back in the present if there's such a thing in the q continuum but it so it's, it's all kind of disjointed out of joint and in fact at one point q appears in exosia and kind of waggles his finger at vivia saying oh you can't mess with the timeline like you know better than that you can't prevent that from happening so yeah it's interesting that like trying to prevent this from happening still leads to it happening like it, that's how it was meant to happen kind of thing and why did vivia think the doctor would prevent it from happening well i think she 
she just told him the story from her perspective and he believed her until until Balaam told him the other side of the story. And he's like, wait, she's wrong. That's all. That's true. Because at first he didn't really know to trust Balaam and then he learned that he should. He, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. It, yeah, this this is very interesting. It was very good. Um to get Kess in there. I, I like, even though it's kind of strange how they bring Kess back, I like it. It's, it's very different and it's really smart to bring her back like this too, because this, because this trilogy is a celebration of the 10th anniversary of Voyager. And because this is taking place between seasons four and five, you don't have Kess there, but now you found a way to bring Kess into the story. So you have the principal cast from all seven seasons involved in this story. And I like the uh, the way the story unfolds in a way to say that like things happen the way they're meant to happen. And this kind of happens in the Tom and Harry part of the story as well, where Harry is like, oh, I'm going to make this big bet and everything's going to work out. And so he makes this huge bet, but loses. But the fact that they lost the bet and Ocampa, which was one of the things that the keeper of the light had bet and by Harry losing meant that that was lost to this other guy as well. That was what made him realize what that kind of loss means to him and, and that he should fight for it. So like, even when something appears to be a failure or like something isn't supposed to go one way, it's still, it, it causes that to happen. I don't know if that's making sense, but I like that kind of theme here that we see playing out in both of these stories. It's like the universe corrects itself. It has its own yeah. destiny or something. Yeah. <laughs> or, or not even corrects itself, but like when you think something is the wrong way to happen, it actually turns out that is the right way for it to happen because the keeper of light wouldn't have come to that realization if he hadn't have lost Ocampa in that right. bet kind of thing. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm liking that. I'm liking that there's that kind of theme running through it. Yeah, I do too. So it's, it's, it is very different for sure, but mm -hmm. it's clever at the same time. Yeah, for sure. And then we come to what is kind of my least favorite part of the story, but it, it's still like the, the culmination of all these storylines where everything kind of comes together. And it's this kind of showdown on Voyager. So Phoebe... Uh, the the Nacine who had taken on the form of Phoebe Janeway rallies her fellow exiles together to attempt to get into Exosia. And she does this by fashioning a new key out of like the bodies of more Nacine. So she like has people sacrifice themselves to create this new key and plans to use Voyager as the gateway to get into Exosia and, you know, killing everyone on board and the process kind of thing. So I don't know. What did you think of this all coming to a head and, and like where this is all happening? Because, you know, there's some interesting things here. I like the involvement of the keeper of the light and all of that, but I'm just, I'm tired of the Nacine and Phoebe Janeway and their evil machinations. By this point, I'm kind of rolling my eyes at, at all of this. Yeah. I'm similar in that. I, I just started really getting tired like you're saying of the nascene and the gateway in and and them trying to get to exosia and and all this stuff that's been going on 
uh, the key, yeah, all of that, because it felt a lot like just a replay of what we got at the end of book two. It's like, oh, we're doing this again, except, and I mean, that was the intent because, you know, Phoebe failed with getting, using the key and getting to Exosia. And now she's making the attempt again. So it makes sense that we get there, but it just also seemed kind of convenient that Cole could just come and just make it work for everybody and take him to another plane of existence in some other dimension or something to that effect. And, and everybody's happy and great. I mean, it was fine. It was okay. But like you said, it was my least favorite part of this. And again, it gets a bit confusing it, it kind of also reminds me now that I think about it as, as V'ger, as if going to another, like a light or something, go another plane of existence. And not that there's anything wrong with that, of course. I'm just, it's just something that just occurred to me now that I never thought of at the time I was reading the book, but now I'm starting to see that too. But yeah, the whole Phoebe thing, I, I, I could care less if Phoebe ever came back again as, as Phoebe, Phoebe or Anacine at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, her plan to do this, there's this kind of face-off in engineering, and we didn't really mention them, but they have another group of Minorans aboard that they've rescued from this ship, and they're kind of using their powers to augment the bioneural gel packs and all this stuff, and the Nacine led by Phoebe are, are fighting them in engineering kind of thing. And we get this kind of final scene with the Keeper of the Light getting possession of the key, basically, and convincing the Nacine that are in Exosia that they shouldn't be there anymore and, and kind of expelling them all back out into the regular universe or something. I don't know. I, I It seemed like a quick wrap-up, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad that it's a quick wrap-up, if that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like that's kind of what I was saying earlier, trying to allude to. that. It, yeah, it just felt convenient, very quick, and not that interesting to me. But I, I think the thing I do really liked about this book and the others, as it was building on, is the whole thing about the knee scene that we didn't learn from the Voyager TV series, that we're learning more about this race, these beings, and, and why they're there, and what they're doing, and and uh, it... it it created a lot more depth to them that I really appreciated. And I like the fact that since this was a, a nod to the 10th anniversary that we're reflecting back to what started the Voyager series. And that was the caretaker. And so, mm. and Ocampa. So we're all kind of going back to that first episode and really playing off of it. So as much of I, as I didn't like a lot of the Nacine scenes, I also appreciated how I was learning more about the Nacine and their motivations from these scenes. Mm -hmm. The Nacine scenes. The, the, the Nacine scenes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Say that five times real fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of little nods like that and little things that I'm enjoying. I love that we actually meet the caretaker and Suspiria back on the planet too. And like when they were young. Yeah, the lights Younger. like Yeah, the lights like you too, you're in charge of taking care of the Ocampa while yeah. I'm gone or something like that. And they're like, "Yes, sir." And like go off and do that. I'm like, yeah, oh, that's we got cool. history on that that now. Yeah, that's yeah. why I liked about it. Yeah. Definitely. Well, one aspect of this novel too that you brought up in the notes here that I appreciate is the fact that Janeway is kind of absent for much of this novel. So, she was horribly injured 
at the end of the last novel and is unconscious throughout this novel. So, yeah, you ask here, does this Voyager book work without the lead captain? And I think that's interesting because I hadn't really thought of it. But at the same time, while reading this novel, I kept kind of reflecting on Chakotay's command style and that sort of thing and how he is without Janeway there. And I don't know. I, I How do you feel about how Chakotay led Voyager in this novel? Because I have a few thoughts that I'm I'm not sure if they're positive or negative, but I don't know. I think Chakotay comes across as a good captain, but not a great captain in this mm-hmm. book. And I think it's intentional also because you want Janeway to be the better captain. So... Yeah. I mean, I didn't always agree with Chakotay. I think he did okay. I thought he was doing pretty well for himself. But I will say that I really didn't miss Janeway from this book, though. Um, It wasn't until I got to the end where I realized, oh, my gosh, we haven't had Janeway throughout this whole book, and I didn't really miss her. And that's not a dig at Janeway at all. It's Mm -hmm. more of a that just shows how much I like these characters and how strong they are. And I was so invested in their storyline that I really didn't miss Janeway. Because I love Janeway, but um, you know we didn't get a whole lot of you know Balana, for example, as we did like in previous books. But that was fine because I was really enjoying the storylines we were getting with the certain characters that were focused on. And Jacody, I didn't feel like they focused as much on him as they did the others, but I think he probably got more in this than he did in the previous two. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we we see a lot into his mind about command decisions and his distrust of Tuvok now because of Tuvok's actions in the previous books and his decision to train seven of nine in command to maybe eventually become the first officer or something like that. I thought were some interesting choices that I don't know that I entirely agree with, but they were interesting. And I could kind of see him doing that. Yeah. He's putting his little replacement crew together. If he can't get the whole regular crew back the command crew that is Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean i thought it was fine what did you think i mean did you like chakotay's decision making in this yeah i thought he was okay i thought he was a little hard on tuvok personally yeah (laughs) i I thought so too based on the circumstances i don't think it's it was totally tuvok's fault of the Mm -hmm. way he acted so yeah and plus the fact that tuvok's actions at the end were actually pretty selfless i think yeah to kind of save Janeway and the, and the ship basically. But I don't know, maybe that's, I don't know. That's maybe not how Chakotay sees it, I guess. But, you know, I think he did well under very difficult circumstances. I mean, they lost their only medical officer and half of their command crew. So, you know, he was on, he was under some pressure there. So I, I guess, I guess maybe he didn't use the resources the best he could, but I don't know. He did. Okay. Well, but you know, now I think about it also, he was also operating under the shadow of Janeway because there was times he was questioning, well, what would Janeway do? And this is really still Janeway's ship. So I don't know if he really felt like he could be in total command and make the decisions he would make because I think he realizes there are some decisions he would make that are different than Janeway's. And Janeway is still alive. Janeway is still on the ship. 
this is still her ship, so he has to honor her. So I can see where he might have some struggles with trying to make a command decision because it's not solely his ship, but then yet he is in charge. He's in command right now. So mm-hmm. he doesn't want to make a decision that Janeway's going to come back later on and say, you made the wrong decision and this is my ship. You know, right. I, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, now I'm thinking more back on it. I, I, I really like some of the scenes we got with Chakotay in this book. For sure. So speaking of Janeway, one of the things that happens is the Keeper of the Light suggests that her memory be wiped of the events of this entire uh, whole three book incident because of the effect that it will have on her and you know, physiologically she's been damaged by all of this. So, you know, it, it would cause these problems and interesting choice for sure. I definitely didn't see that coming. And then another thing he says that she will experience uh, times where she's erratic in her actions that will seem atypical due to this trauma, which kind of brings me into the next section where we're setting up things for, uh, what happens right after this in season five. So yeah. What did I think about wiping her memory is an interesting question because I don't know, that seemed like a little bit out of left field for me, but he does an Mm -hmm. okay job of explaining why I guess, but it seemed like an odd choice for them to just go along with. Well, just the way you're saying that and thinking through it, it's kind of an odd choice, but it came out of left field. But yeah, I guess it's a good. Yeah, that's how I felt about it. I was like, I didn't really understand why we needed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's to explain something that happens later in season five or something, okay, maybe. But I just didn't buy the fact that we had to wipe her memory of this incident. Why? Because uh, she's going to experience more trauma because of what she went through. Like, I, I didn't really understand why we needed to do that. I just, but then at the end of the book, she se- still seemed to retain some memory. I, I was a little confused at that hmm. point. Oh, okay. I didn't catch that. Because she was saying something about, wow, I can't believe, you know, you guys did all this while I was gone. <laughs> I was like, well, do oh, you because remember? she was reading the reports of how many crew members died. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, it's, yeah, I don't know. But then I thought, well, if she's reading that and she's being told this information, wouldn't that maybe even trigger some of her memory? And if it doesn't, why are we sharing that with her? Because I thought we were wanting her not to know. Well, but I mean, like, they'd have to tell her that because if there's 10 fewer crew members than there were last week, she's going to want to know what? <laughs> like, Yeah, but I know they wouldn't want to lie to her about what happened, but... If you're going to tell her what happened, why bother wiping her memory of it? I don't know. Yeah, I well, just they didn't did, really get that. They didn't tell her what happened, though. They said that they went into Minoran space and got knocked around and 10 crew members died and she was in a coma and they got out of the space. and Oh, that was a bumpy ride and everybody hit their head and 10 people died from it. And that's all it was. Catherine. Yeah. Or there's an explosion <laughs> or something. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah. they didn't say how they died. They just, you know, okay. or they made up something of how they died. But so yeah. they lied to her. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a huge lie of omission and then probably some other small lies to make it make sense as yeah. well. Yeah. They anyway, this was not my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I didn't really get totally. it. I mean, I, I get it, but I just didn't know why it was needed. Yeah, no, I agree. 
to me, the, the part that really jumped out at me is where they say that her actions will be erratic due yes. to what happened here. And this is very obviously setting up the very next episode, the first episode of season five. So yeah, there's that. So the decision she makes in the episode night to kind of lock herself in her quarters and be depressed the author is saying that's because of the trauma that she experienced here, which I thought was kind of odd. I did like the explanation for the big, huge void of space with no stars that they're going to be traveling through now because of the events here kind of wiped that out. I was like, that's kind of cool. That I appreciated. And I guess since Janeway didn't refer to this event from that starless place in space, that's why we had to wipe her memory. Again, I don't really, yeah, I, anyway, yeah, it sounds like these things were done just to explain things in season five that maybe work or don't work. <laughs> the other thing that just occurred to me is like later on, they'll delete some memories from the doctor because it makes his mind go crazy. It'd be interesting if, if someone was like, huh, that's, that's what we did to Janeway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we've done this before. <laughs> that's funny uh, and then there's something else that came in this book and i kept thinking of you when it came up about kess yes so <laughs> we're gonna get there because i have i have feelings um but yeah there, there's a number of things and I, I i think it's interesting that they touch on it i like that they talk about balana's recklessness and her despondency so a couple episodes from here we get extreme risk where Bolana is taking extreme risks in the holodeck and leaving the safeties off and injuring herself. And we get a bit of that here where she's, you know, in pain because of what she's learned about the Maquis and stuff and realizing that, you know, she's in a deep depression and that sort of thing. And yes, as you said, Kess. So this is setting something up way in the future, which I kind of liked. I was wondering that. Yes. Yeah. I like this in the same way that I like what the Enterprise relaunch novels did with Trip and his that. death in yes. at the end of Enterprise. Because yes. you have a problem you have a problem with the episode Fury with Kess. Yes. The Kess's episode portrayal. Fury where Kess returns in season six, I believe. And she's angsty and mean and blows up parts of the ship. And, you know, uh, I just didn't get it. I did not like that episode. And in this one, we get this scene in Exosia where Kess kind of becomes split in two. And this, this angry, fury part of her, which is more Leah than Kess, is kind of off in the universe. And the, the other part, which is more Kess... I guess is not a part of her. So this version of Kess that returns to Voyager isn't really all that Kess-ish, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so right. that made me feel better about that episode a little bit. I still think it's a bad episode, but I, the results of it sit a little better with me, especially with the epilogue we get at the end where the two parts of Kess meet each other back on Ocampa and re kind of, combine i guess and you know everything's all better so i'm like okay that wasn't like actually Kess. right i feel a little better about that i wonder if these books were actually episodes that took place 
in the end of season four, beginning of season five. And this whole thing of Kess and the two Kesses was a previous episode. And then a couple seasons later, you see the episode Fury, if you would have been like, you know, perfectly fine with Fury because you felt like it would have been set up that we get these alternate Kess would come back. Yeah. I, I don't know if I think perfectly fine might be a little too strong. I might be a little better with it. There's still other things in that episode that I really dislike besides just the, the fact that Kess is angry, but yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of ways, don't you feel like the author is saying, Hey, I feel like there are problems later in Voyager and I'm trying to fix those. See, I definitely got that impression. Like Janeway will suddenly act out of character and moody and this is why. And I'm like, I don't really, I didn't see that as a problem. So mm. it, it's funny because I guess maybe we both have the same feeling, me and the author. It's just that we draw the line in different places because I'm all for her fixing Fury. Like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think the Janeway moodiness thing needed to be explained necessarily. But I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't feel like it's needed either, but I mean, it's fine. I mean, that's part of the thing about these novels that they're allowed to, and it, that's part of the fun of these is connecting things and, and maybe explaining things that weren't explained on screen. And that's why sometimes I'm a little more forgiving. If I see something in an episode, I'm like, well, that just kind of seems out of character for that one. And, and I think, well, yeah, but I don't know what that character went through off screen like we don't see them 24 7 maybe they're just having a bad day because something happened the day before and it wasn't really told to us and that's what's that's how i just accept it that something happened and that's the thing like with kess and fury it's like well you know i don't know what kess has been through i don't know what causes who knows what kind of storylines behind that that got her here but then that gets my brain working and thinking of all these different ideas and all the what ifs and that's what these novels are it's those what ifs well, luckily in Fury, a 15-second holographic recording made her all better. So, that's good. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't like that episode. I feel bad for not liking it, but oh, I don't. Sorry. Uh, anyway. We need to review that episode sometime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, with all of that said, I guess, are there any final thoughts, anything that we haven't mentioned that you would like to mention? And then maybe a final rating for book three of the string theory trilogy and maybe the trilogy as a whole. The only thing I can think of that we didn't talk about real quick is Balana. In the first book, I thought she was a little over the top, angry more than usual by this point. And then book two, I felt like she was the way she should be And book three. I felt like she was back to how she was in book one, <laughs> but we just didn't see her as much, but again, I'm okay with that. But um, overall, my final thoughts are that I, th I'm a little disappointed with this trilogy and I'll explain what I mean by that. in the fact that I think the idea of this is a really great idea. I think that the idea of giving us that background on the Nacine is really great and the Acampa and the history of the Acampa and it all links back to that very first episode. So it's a great way to approach the 10th anniversary and doing a trilogy based on that. I love that we've got all the characters having their moments in these books. I do like the strangeness of things. I do like the strange area of space and strange aliens. I like all that kind of stuff. But then at the same time, I kept finding myself being confused. 
And so mm-hmm. I love the ideas. I just was finding myself confused a lot of times and that made it harder for me to really get into it because I wasn't really sure if I was really getting what was going on. And as we've said before, we've heard that from other people who've read this trilogy that they were confused. It reminded me of some early Star Trek novels I read that were back in the Bantam days. There's a few novels there that I used to read and I was like, I'm really confused or this is really weird and it would lose me. And that's kind of how I felt with this. So I know we're just talking about this book now in our ratings, but I would say this book was really good in the fact that I liked the Tom and Harry adventure. I liked the doctor adventure. I could do without the Phoebe stuff, but you know, overall, I would typically give this like a four out of five, but at the same time, I was getting tired of this whole storyline that has been played out. So by the time we're getting to book three, I'm like, I'm really done with this. I'm really not as interested in it anymore. So that just had to knock it down a little too. So I have to give this three and a half out of five spores that will help me go into the next realm of adventures. Nice. Yeah. I feel like a lot of my thoughts are very similar to yours. I'm enjoying a lot of things that are bringing us back to the origins of Voyager. So the Nicene, it was really fun to see the Ocampa again. It was really great to see Kess again in a return that kind of took a bit of the bad taste of her canon return in in Voyager out of my mouth a little bit, which is good. And yeah, I'm enjoying the Q stuff. I'm enjoying the past on Ocampa stuff. I thought the doctor was really good in this novel, not episode. And I, I'm liking generally how the characters are, are interacting. I'm liking Chakotay in command, you know, making some decisions that I thought maybe weren't quite the right decisions, but that's good. That's his choice to make kind of thing. Like you it gets bogged down, I think, in some of the confusing elements that are just a little bit too, I don't know, too high level stuff that just kind of is going out of its way to try and explain really complicated ideas and issues instead of being just a more simple story. That takes away from it a little bit. So I think I would have to give this one something around a 3.75 out of five. So a little higher than book than book one, a little lower than book two is kind of where I'm putting this one at, you know, I'm enjoying it, but like you, I'm kind of getting a little tired of this ongoing storyline. So uh, 3.75 pyramid scoring wager things out of five. <laughs> So yeah, we're about the same here, you know. So yeah, I I was a little disappointed because I read that the authors were told they can go crazy now that Voyager was over and maybe they went a little too crazy that they confused us. <laughs> yeah. And then still having to make it line up with the Voyager that comes after, I think might have been a little I don't know if they stuck the landing there exactly, but yeah. Might have been a little bit off a bit more than they could chew, perhaps? I don't know. 
Well, I'm really glad that we had the chance to do a trilogy on Voyager and uh, do it for the 25th anniversary of Voyager by reading the 10th anniversary trilogy. So as much as these books didn't really stand up to what I was hoping they would be, I still enjoyed them and still enjoyed revisiting with the Voyager crew. Agreed. Yeah, I overall am glad that we read these novels. I generally enjoyed them, but I'm also glad we're done. (laughs) You know, we kind of stuck around in Minoran space a little longer than we needed to, kind of like Voyager did, I think. So, you know, it's been fun talking about overstaying our welcome in weird areas of space today, but that's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. Not wanting to be spoiled about this book, I would suggest then not listening now, read the book, and then come back later. And then you can enjoy the whole freaking feature of this glorious analysis that we're going to give this. I shot JR. Sorry, I, I thought we were getting into spoilers. My, my bad. <laughs> I don't know. I just, like, woke up from a dream. I was in the shower. Um, The orb. But if you think about the fact that Cisco is with the prophets at this time, and Section 31 is going to try to kill the prophets, maybe that's a way for Cisco to re enter the story and play his role in representing the prophets to overturn what Section 31 is trying to do and to champion that idea of truidic. And, and end the season with that message that religion is fine for those who want to believe it, and it's also fine for you not to believe it. Earl Grey. One of my notes I made on this episode is that Riker is a cosplayer. He likes to put on the native costumes of the planets he goes to. Yes. You and I have started making a, a Riker Angel 1. Cosplay. Ewan, Ewan wants it for SLB, so. Nice. Yes! That was one of my notes as well, was Riker's left nipple. <laughs> Doesn't leave much to the imagination, but yeah. To the journey! Quick snap poll. Suzanne, would you prefer Neelix yes. to cook for you or Chell? Chell. Chell? Zach, Neelix or Chell? Neelix. Oh. <laughs> oh. I see Leola root in your future. <laughs> Lots of it. Oh yeah. Give me those exotic ingredients. Yes. Chell is my man. I mean, you can have na- you, with Chell. You can get like all those puns, pun food items that he made. <laughs> exactly. It would be like Bob's Burgers in space. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows phone youtube spotify and most third-party apps and you can stream and download the mp3 file from our website or grab the rss link and if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week you can become a patron of the network on patreon 
visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows, plus great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just go to goodreads.com, search for Literary Treks, and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek.fm network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not taking a shuttlecraft into a suburb of the Q Continuum, where can we find you? <laughs> you can find me at the mall in the Q Continuum suburb, and I'm shopping at the Gap and other things. Or you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast about Star Wars, of course, and you can find me on Positively Trek with you, Dan. That's another podcast that has Star Trek things in it. And Dan, when you are not flying around in your egg car race with a attractive lowercase Q, where can people find you? those lowercase q's man wow you can find me on twitter much like yourself but on twitter i am at kurtrats that's k-e-r-t-r-a-t-s you can also find me on youtube.com slash kurtrats productions making videos about star trek and occasionally every week on fridays doing a live show with you bruce and brandy jackala which has been a lot of fun so yeah those are where you can find me. And of course, Positively Trek, as you mentioned, which I'm having a lot of fun doing. So I hope you'll join us there. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.